Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. In recent years, Japan has found itself increasingly at a crossroads between its post-war ally, the United States, and rising neighbor, China. Here today to talk with us about the domestic and regional forces shaping Japan's ties with the U.S. and China is Ken Moriyasu. Ken is the U.S. editor and chief desk editor of Nikkei Asia, the English-language arm of Japan's top economic newspaper, Nikkei. He has been with Nikkei for 27 years, serving as the Japanese newspaper's correspondent in Washington, D.C., Cairo, Beijing, and Dalian. We're very excited to have him here with us today. Could you please give a brief context for contemporary U.S.-Japan relations? How has the relationship changed under a new American administration? Thank you for having me. I think on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being really bad relations, 10 being really good relations, I would say the current U.S.-Japan relations are something like 25. So it's way out of um, off the charts, and uh, the relationship is very good. The relationship has been good since the days of uh, former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and President Donald Trump. But that relationship was very much dependent on Abe's personal relationship with Trump. I think the Biden administration has changed the dynamics of the relationship in a very positive way, in that it's more based on values and this um, shared view of the world and a liberal international order. So it's much more easier for Japan to get on board. Uh, The other side of that is that China has really stopped bothering uh, to be loved by the world. So when it comes to Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, it really doesn't care what the world thinks. So that has made it much more easier for Japan to stick with Washington. But in the mid to long term, whether this honeymoon between the US and Japan will last forever, and whether Japan's strategy is correct in just teaming with America, I'm not quite sure. And I think there's a really interesting example here Japan's attitude and South Korea's attitude towards the White House, the Biden White House, is very different. Japan and Quad, uh, Japan has embraced the free and open Indo-Pacific. Uh, South Korea is, doesn't want anything to do with the Quad, doesn't really, uh, only half-heartedly embraces the free and open Indo-Pacific. It doesn't want to criticize China by name. And you could say that that's because South Korea sees the world heading into a bipolar world where the US and China are the two big superpowers. In a bipolar world, it makes sense for a middle power like South Korea to have good relations with both. I think Japan thinks that we're not heading into a bipolar world. We're heading into a world where the US-led international liberal order will be much bigger and more powerful than China's pillar. So whether that's true, I can't say, but I think it's important for Japan and South Korea to keep their options open and to be flexible because we really don't know which way the world is going. So next question is, what are Japan's key interests and concerns when it comes to China? And how do they compare with those of the Biden administration? Right. So Japan's economy is very much intertwined with China. We have so many manufacturers and recently so much more retail doing business in China. And the reality is that China is the source of growth for so many Japanese companies. So it's very difficult to decouple with China completely. Japan would like to have a good security relationship with America, but also have a good economic relationship with China. That looks to be very difficult to sustain going forward. I say that because 
if you look at the Pentagon and the things that they are worried about, I think they're worried about day one of the future potential war with China. They think that on day one, China will attempt to take down the GPS and to block uh, satellite communication uh, between the GPS and American missiles, American ships, American planes, so as to cancel America's military advancement. And uh, what they're really paranoid about, the Americans are, is that uh, Chinese chips embedded into the system in American infrastructure uh, could be planted with malware. And on day one, all that China has to do is press the button and that would really um, take down the GPS. Now, if that's the case, then the sanctions on Huawei, for instance, are not going to go away. And America will try to build a separate decoupled supply chain of high-tech technology. And it would request that Japan and South Korea and all its allies move to the American version of the supply chain. Now, that's going to be really difficult for, for Japanese companies like Tokyo Electron and all these companies, Murata, that make a bulk of their profit in China. So whether Japan decouples in the high-tech world from China is going to be a very difficult choice for Japan to make. What is the Suga administration's current stance on cross-state relations and the potential for conflict between mainland China and Taiwan? Right. I think um, Japan, for Japan, if China does take over Taiwan militarily, if that happens on Wednesday, I think Japan thinks that it will come after the Senkaku Islands on Thursday and possibly come for the Okinawa Islands on Friday. So that's why the Taiwan issue is a, is a Japanese defense issue. But when it comes to Suga's position on Taiwan, I think it's a little different from Biden. In March, Japan and the US held a two plus two meeting of defense and foreign ministers. In that statement, they say they, they underscore the importance of the peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. And in April, when Biden and Suga met at the White House, they added one more sentence to that. They underscored the importance of peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait and encourages the peaceful resolution of cross-strait issues. So on the surface, at first glance, it looks like they added more on Taiwan. So maybe Japan and the, the US toughened their stance on Taiwan. It was indeed the first time since 1969 that the US and Japanese leaders mentioned Taiwan in their joint statement. But if you look at the words that were added, it's encouraging the peaceful resolution of cross-strait issues, which is not really tough. It's very um, peaceful, actually. And I heard that uh, Suga uh, wanted to add this, to signal that the first priority is a peaceful resolution. So I think there may be a little bit of a difference between Suga and the Pentagon on this issue. There was a really uh, telling anecdote at uh, Biden and Suga's meeting at the White House. Uh, they met for many hours, but the very first meeting was just a one-on-one -on -one between Biden and Suga with just translators. They had a hamburger in front of them and it was supposed to last for 40 minutes, but it ended in 20 minutes and neither Suga or Biden touched their hamburger. And what the people around Suga were suggesting to Suga was you make use of this one-on-one, -on -one, this 40-minute one-on-one to tell Biden that if something happens in the Taiwan Strait, I'm gonna be with you. That's the kind of commitment that leaders make in a one-on-one -on -one setting. But apparently Suga didn't do that. He talked about his childhood, the fact that he's um, children of strawberry farmers, and Biden talked about his family. They looked at the photos in the room, and then that was 20 minutes. So that kind of tells you 
that uh, Yoshihide Suga is no Shinzo Abe. So they have very different views on the Taiwan Strait, and Suga's priority is a peaceful resolution of the Taiwan issues. That's a very interesting anecdote and, uh, and then great insights. So the third question is, China and Japan have a long history of trade and interaction, but also of conflict and war. How does this complicated past influence current political attitudes in both countries? And how do you personally feel about the future of China-Japan relations, both short and long-term? Thank you. Right, history is a very interesting aspect of the US-China relationship. Of course, the immediate history is a very sad history and it really tears up the relationship uh, between the two countries. But if you go back a few centuries uh, to the Tan Dynasty and the Nara period of Japan, relations are very good. Japan sent 20 dignitaries to the Tan Dynasty to learn about the culture and the science. Chang'an back then was the New York of today, the bustling, uh, most advanced metropolitan uh, metropolis of the world. And uh, Japan learned so much. There's an interesting anecdote um, from Europe. People came to the Tan Dynasty to receive silk, and they would take back the silk on the Silk Road to their respective capitals. But when Japan came to Chang'an, the emperor of the Tan Dynasty would give the Japanese missions silk, the best silk in the world. But in the history books of the Tang, it says that the Japanese are very strange people. Every time they receive the silk from the emperor, they go to the market and exchange it for books. And they will load the books on the ships and go back to Japan. So whereas the road between the Tan Dynasty and Europe was the silk road, the road between Tan Dynasty and Japan was the book road. And whereas the Europeans focused on the materialistic wealth of China, Japan focused on the intellectual wealth of China and reestablished, recreated a capital, just like Chang'an in Nara and Kyoto, in a matter of years. So I think the relationship between Japan and China has been, was that of uh, admiration and learning from the best. If China does become the world's dominant superpower in 2028 or 2030, and it can become like the Tan Dynasty, I think Japan will tilt towards China. But if the superpower China is an extension of what the China is today, then that's not going to happen. So we'll see. Um, history tells us that uh, Japan has not hesitated to change its alliances. In the early 20th century, Japan had an alliance with England. Then it switched 180 degrees to team with Nazi Germany after the war. It tilted 180 degrees back to the US and freedom and democracy. So it has a track record that suggests that if China becomes the dominant superpower, it will have no hesitation to switch to China, but we'll see. That's fascinating. I'm actually reading a book by a China scholar, Ezra Vogel. Um, the book is on Japan and China's interaction over the past like centuries. So it's just like fascinating to hear um, the stories that you just mentioned. How would you characterize Japan as a regional and global power today? What are its current values, priorities, and ambitions in East Asia? Japan is the world's third largest economy. Uh, it has a very powerful, especially a maritime self-defense force. So you could say that it's a, a major country. But if you really think of the great power competition and the players taking part in that great power competition, I think they have to have a huge population, 
huge economy, huge military, and a global ambition. Uh, Japan doesn't really fit those. It doesn't have the population. It doesn't have the global ambition. So that would we'll leave that to the U.S. and China. So that probably makes Japan a middle power. Uh, and if you look at what's happening in the Indo-Pacific, while there is a great power competition and all these uh, India, Australia, Japan are siding with America, underneath the surface, there is a, a movement of these middle powers joining hands. And what's interesting is that they're joining hands, first to form a united front against China, but also I think they're preparing for the day when the next American president isn't as committed to the Indo-Pacific and isn't as caring of its allies and partners. So that if such a, a new American president does come into office, these middle powers would have a stable footing. And last week uh, at the G7 in Cornwall, there was a very interesting anecdote regarding this. So on June 13th, Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison and Japanese Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga had a really warm, uh, friendly breakfast by the beach for one hour. And at the end of the bilateral, there was a 20-minute session when they had well, just one-on-one -on -one with interpreters. Now, Scott Morrison was the first uh, in-person visitor that Yoshida Suga received last November. So they know each other. Suga calls Morrison Skobo, so they're friends. But then I was wondering, you know, why they look so happy. And then I looked at the news the day before, Saturday, June 12th, and I noticed that Scott Morrison had tried to have a bilateral meeting with Biden and he was refused and he had to settle for a trilateral with Boris Johnson. And apparently reportedly that was a signal from the White House that it wasn't happy with Scott Morrison's refusal to commit to zero emissions by 2050. So it didn't want to reward Morrison with bilateral. Now for Morrison and Australia, uh, they have clearly shifted away from China. I think Australia's move away from Beijing is the most significant geopolitical shift that happened that has happened in the Indo-Pacific over the past two years. But if that Biden won't even give one of its guys a bilateral, then of course um, Australia would be very worried and it would look to hedge uh, its stance. And I think uh, Scott, Scott Morrison's friendship with Suga is a reflection of Australia's uh, desire to have stronger relations with Japan. Japan and Australia uh, are forming a sort of a quasi-alliance and this middle power um, arrangement is going to be a very interesting topic to follow in the NCP. Wow, that's great insight. Here comes our last question, actually. You kind of touched on this uh, very briefly at the beginning. It's on like China, South Korea, Japan relationship. So the question is, um, in April, Japan approved a plan to release nuclear wastewater into the ocean, which had provoked huge opposition in surrounding countries like South Korea and China. How will this impact the Japan-China-South Korea relationship, as well as U.S. alliances in East Asia? Thank you. Right. This, uh, how to handle the water, the wastewater that comes out of the Fukushima nuclear plants is a race against time. Uh, by 2022, in the fall of 2022, uh, the capacity will reach maximum. So they have to find a way to get rid of these tanks, which hold the polluted water. Uh, I read that there's 1,000 of these tanks already. Um, so the decision to um, dispose this water diluted uh, quite heavily to make it really thin and safe 
uh, has been uh, given the a stamp of approval from the IAEA. Um, but I think the way that Japan has not really explained to its neighbors or the people of the Fukushima uh, is a problem. And I think part of the problem is that um, while Japan's relationship with America is getting stronger and stronger, it really hasn't um, strengthened its relationship with its neighbors. If you look at Japan's current relationship with all its neighbors, Russia, China, North Korea, South Korea, they're all bad. So this is really um, not the best ideal position for Japan. I think if Japan had more trust with its neighbors, more stronger relations, there could have been a better way to go to China, go to South Korea, explain that these waters are not dangerous and there could have been a better way to do it. But I don't think this is going to really hurt the relationships uh, between China and Japan and South Korea. I think China is using it uh, as one talking point um, against the US and Japan as it uh, strengthens its alliance. That makes total sense. Um, so these are all our questions. It's been like an amazing 20 minutes to really learn from you. Do you have anything else to add, um, Bridget? Um, been really interesting hearing from you. And what is Nikkei Asia and how can people who are interested in US, Japan, China, Japan, all East Asian regional relations, how can they learn more? What is a good resource for them? So thank you for asking. Nikkei Asia is the English language arm of Nikkei. Nikkei is a Japanese newspaper in operation for 145 years. We want to be the go-to place for everything regarding the Indo-Pacific, business, economy, and the geopolitics that influence those business decisions. We're at asia.nikkei.com. You can subscribe to us the first three months for two cups of coffee. So please give it a try. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. And I will probably see you on Clubhouse at some point. All right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank thanks you so, so much. much. All bye right. Bye. bye. Thank you for having me. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.